0: Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you and hear you. Let's, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. And uh, we've seen that in this second sermon of Jesus, uh, very significantly, he's showing us not only how to live our lives, but how to go out and, and transform our world, how to be uh, messengers of the gospel of peace. And we've seen that he, he calls us for this very purpose. We're called to this, this is our vocation. Uh, just more surely than you're a banker or a lawyer or a physician, uh, he has called you to the vocation of uh, proclaiming the gospel here and around the world. We saw that in verse 1 of chapter 10. And then we saw these uh, 12 guys we could very easily uh, fit into that group, pretty motley crew there. And then we, we see that he calls us to send us out. So yes, he calls us into intimate fellowship with him, but then he... Sends us out into the external world. And he sends us, uh, first of all, where people know us the the best. He says, go to the house of Israel. So we start where we are. If you want to be a a missionary to India, the best thing to do is share the gospel with your neighbor right now. And uh, in, in days when I've been involved in interviewing international missionary candidates... Main thing I want to know is what are you doing right now in terms of evangelism and ministering the gospel? So you start where you are. We saw that clearly in the text. Of course, uh, our missionary conference here at Second is coming up here in about a month, and we'll be praying for and paying for people all over the world. That's what we're supposed to do, Uh, but we're supposed to be missionaries right here where we are. We're sent out, and we start at home. And then we saw in verse 8 what the ministry consists of. It consists of, uh, or verse 7 and 8, consists of a proclamation, a message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 8 we saw that the ministry of the gospel involves caring for people in their need, in their temporal needs. And it's not either or, it's both and. And... uh, So wherever we go, we don't just go to help the poor. We go to help the poor in their temporal needs, but we go to help them with their eternal need because the gospel addresses all forms of human suffering, especially eternal suffering. Get that. The gospel addresses all forms of human suffering, especially eternal suffering. So it's both and, temporal and eternal, but with a special eye. To the eternal because obviously it lasts longer it's a it's a bigger problem if you just do the math so the gospel ministry consists of both preaching and healing and caring for people and then we've seen that we don't let the rejection of the gospel slow us down it, it just sends us on to the next town or sends us on to the next mission so we don't take a no as a final no a no can be a no from you right now i 'll come back to you later meanwhile i 'm going to go on over here, share the gospel with the next person, and the odds are that you 'll probably go to about you 'll probably get four no's before you get a yes and any of you who are actively involved in evangelism know how that goes if you 're not prepared to receive a no you 're not going to be uh, experiencing many yeses and those of you in the in the sales business you have to to learn how to absorb the blows of rejection you get it all the time uh, well, you get it most of the time. It Depends on what you're selling, I suppose. Uh, but uh, you, you have to learn how to take those no's and keep going, and wait—you know—waiting expectantly for the yeses. And that's what we're get it, given here in Matthew 10. Shake the dust off your feet. They didn't reject you ultimately. They rejected the Christ that you're proclaiming and representing. And you go on to the next. You go on to the next uh, house. Now we come to verse 16, and here through verse 33. Uh, we're going to see that Jesus is addressing not just our being told no, but our being abused. This is a bigger problem. And uh, he does not want to send his disciples out anywhere uh, without being warned. And you'll find this throughout the gospel accounts. You'll find it throughout the book of Acts, as we learned uh, recently here. And you'll find it through Paul's experience in his epistles that he does face face not only rejection, but he does face persecution. And Jesus spends a lot of time here talking about it so that everybody's got a heads up and nobody's going into battle thinking you're not going to get shot at. You are going to get shot at. And so let's, let's read this. And Jesus gives us some very important instructions about how to handle this in the gospel ministry. And obviously it's just as true today. Uh, as it was in his day. Verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. And the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You know, uh, when, when we take um, a gospel message uh, here and around the world, uh, we're, we're quite aware that it's a message that enables people to be reconciled to God, to be able to call God their father, to trust him, to know that their sins are completely forgiven. It's a gospel message that we know delivers people into his presence for eternity rather than into hell where we all deserve. And wherever the gospel ministry goes, we find that the poor are cared for and that demons are cast out, that institutions are established. Sometimes governments are changed because of the gospel of Christ. And so, You might expect that wherever Christians would go all over the world, we would be welcomed with open arms. And when we get off the ships, they would be in there in the harbor with a band and a parade to welcome us. Uh, It's not the way it works. Uh, What we've found throughout history is that wherever Christians have gone, uh, pretty much they've been violently opposed and have oftentimes faced their own death and sometimes for many, many years before the gospel takes hold in a particular culture. It's not because of what we do that we are rejected. We're not perfect, we misbehave oftentimes, sometimes we're self-righteous, sometimes we create unnecessary uh, furor in many places, but generally speaking, wherever Christians have gone, they have done a lot of good for those cultures where they are. So it's not because of what we do that we find rejection. It's primarily because of what we believe and especially because of what we say. It's the message that is so offensive. And so what you find uh, in some Christian communities, because of that, folks will uh, revert simply to a Christian ministry that is speechless, a Christian ministry without words. And wherever you do that, you'll find you will be warmly welcomed. And you'll find some ministries in town that are ministries of deed that have really no gospel proclamation that go with them. They're very popular. They end up being reported well of in the newspaper. But where you have gospel ministries that are ministries of deed and word, you always find there's a measure of resentment and sometimes a measure of rejection and sometimes a measure of abuse toward those ministries. It's the gospel message. Now, what is it about the gospel message that people find so offensive? Just a few words, just some air going over a larynx and and the sound going into someone's ear. What is it that angers people and causes them to reject it? Well, what we're told in the pages of the scriptures is that early on, first century, the gospel message was offensive because people found that the message of Christ was foolish to uh, educationally trained people. That it seemed very foolish that a person a Jewish person in particular, dying naked on a Roman gibbet, would somehow be meritorious for us educated people who are not criminals. And, and uh, we're supposed to trust in Him for our relationship with God. That doesn't sound like a very enlightened gospel. So it was rejected because it was foolish. Among the Jews, it was rejected because it was so weak. What they wanted in a gospel message, what they believed the good news was that God was going to come and triumphantly uh, restore their great nation in great might and power. The gospel is weak. You end up getting killed, and that's your gospel. It made no sense, and it was very offensive to the Jews who believed that what they deserved as God's people was a mighty triumph. So it was foolish and it was weak and that was the offense of Christ but then we find also that the gospel is offensive because its prelude is about our need and when we're describing our need we're talking about sin aren't we and when we talk about sin we talk about sin's wages and the wages of sin is eternal hell it's death and that's not a very popular message so the heart of the message is is a dead Jew dying for our sins, uh, raised on the third day, which seems fantastical to people. The prelude or the need for the gospel is our wickedness. That's not a very popular message. And then today, of course, in a postmodern world where we value uh, inclusion, or so we say we do, we include everybody except evangelicals, of course, but uh, we say we value inclusion, and now you have a group of people, uh, Christians, who are saying that the only way to find favor with God, the only way among all the world religions, there's only one way, and that's the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very offensive philosophically to the ears of our own day. There are other reasons why the gospel is offensive, but that just gives us a start. Now, Jesus is gathering his disciples. He's saying, look, boys, I don't want you to be mistaken. People are not going to be holding parades for you, except you'll be at the end of the parade like, like a dung, um, and you will be the, like condemned criminals in the parade. Don't be expecting a great welcoming party out there. And I want us to notice what he says to them. First of all, in verses 16 through 18, he says, Beware of wolves. Wolves. Wow, that's what he's calling the world. He said, there are wolves out there. Now, some wolves get converted. Some people are not wolves, but there are wolves out there. And he is sending us out as sheep among wolves. Jesus is not naive. You shouldn't be naive. He knows where he's sending you. He's sending you to a very dangerous place out into this world. And last time I checked, wolves eat sheep. That's what they do. So he says, I'm sending you people that want to eat your lunch and look to you as someone to destroy. And uh, we need to remember this. Now, in verse 16, he says, You're going to need, you will need wisdom. He says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Let's talk for just a moment about wisdom and innocence. He says, okay, I'm sending you out there among wolves, so don't be silly, don't be foolish. Let's be wise, okay? Now, we remember uh, from Matthew 7, Jesus gave us some tidbits of wisdom about dealing with opposition. He said, do not throw your pearls before swine. So the first thing that a wise man will do when he's facing opposition is to size up what's the nature of the opposition. Is it reasonable or is it merely for the purpose of abuse? If you're just being held up in contempt and being abused, words are not going to help a whole lot, except you could say, God is coming back, and he's going to judge all the wicked people. <laughs> you know, so goodbye, uh, you know, so you can wipe the dust off your feet and head on, so don't throw pearls uh, before swine. Uh, that's the first part of wisdom. Size up your audience. Secondly, when it comes to wisdom, uh, you need to size up what is it about the gospel this particular group needs to hear. You'll notice with the Apostle Paul when he's preaching in Athens, preaching to a very uh, pagan uh, group and, and a philosophical group that he goes philosophical. He t- tries to speak in their language. He's very wise about what he says. Uh, when he's uh, before Roman authorities, he uses language that's very much understandable to them, those who are very much trafficking in power and so on. Uh, and when he's with the Jews, he goes to the synagogue, what does he do? He goes back to the Old Testament takes them through the Old Testament and shows them how Jesus is the Old Testament's Messiah. So if he's dealing with philosophers, he quotes philosophers. If he's dealing with Jewish people, he quotes the Bible. If he's dealing with Romans, he'll, he'll talk about issues of power. So the Apostle Paul's very wise in what he says. So that's the second thing. The third thing, when it comes to wisdom, when you're dealing with the outside world and wolves, sometimes you make statements, sometimes you ask questions. And you'll notice that Jesus and the Apostle Paul are very good at asking questions. And as I mentioned in my sermon last Sunday, uh, rabbis are known for uh, asking questions when you ask a question. Uh, Jesus does that all the time. Uh, in the text we had here uh, on Sunday, uh, the scribes and the, the, the uh, elders say to Him, uh, Who gave you this authority uh, to turn over the tables in the temple? And Jesus says, from whence did John the Baptist's authority come? You answer that. And, of course, they weren't about to answer that because if they said it, that his authority came from heaven, then Jesus would say, well, John pointed to me, so why are you opposing me? If they said it didn't come from heaven, it came from men, the people would go nuts because everybody knew John was a prophet. And they said, well, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I won't answer your question either. <laughs> it's called wisdom. <laughs> Jesus was letting them see their problem was not Jesus. Their problem was God. And his authority. And the reason they didn't recognize Jesus' authority is because they didn't recognize God himself, that they claimed to be the God of Israel. So through asking an important question, uh, he brought out the issue and he never answered, their, he didn't get into their trap. So sometimes you're being trapped. And of course, with experience, you learn uh, better how to do these things. And the best way to get experience is to get started, to engage yourself in conversations and seek to dissect and understand the way people are thinking. It requires wisdom. The wisdom that comes from above, remember James says, is peaceable. It's not envious. It's not angry. It's not hateful. The only way you can possibly have uh, the wisdom that Jesus is talking about here is first of all if you love God with all of your heart and then you love your neighbors yourself. If you love your neighbor, you're not trying to destroy him. You're trying to help him. And that's the only way in which you'll get this kind of wisdom. So this wisdom comes from deep love for God and your neighbor. And he will show you the way, but you must seek it. Uh, We we don't have because we don't ask, says says James. So let's ask God for wisdom. He tells us if we ask him, he'll give it to us. When Solomon didn't have wisdom, he said, God, I don't know how to rule these people. I'm like a four-year-old. I don't even know how to go in and out. And God was very pleased that Solomon asked him. And God made Solomon the wisest man on the face of the earth. Just ask him for that wisdom. You need it in order to be an effective witness among wolves. Now, secondly, notice he says, be innocent as doves. If you're going to be effective among wolves, you have to watch out for all those uh, what we call handles. on. I don't mean these here on the side over your belt. I'm talking about moral handles, reputational handles. Uh, You have to be a man of of high character. Uh, And it doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you're a man who's repentant. Uh, And let me just mention a few things about innocence that I think are important in facing wolves. Number one, there has to be a moral integrity about you. If you're not an honest man, uh, if you don't uh, deal with people fairly, Uh, If you don't pay your taxes, if your company doesn't pay its taxes, if you're not scrupulous in the way that you operate your business, don't expect people to give you much credibility on your religious viewpoints. Uh, If your religious viewpoints lead to this kind of behavior, no thanks. You're no better than anybody else. But if your religious viewpoints are leading you to this kind of behavior, I'm going to at least listen to you. I'm at least going to show you respect. You have to be innocent. As doves. Now you say, "I think I've already blown it." No. Hey, look. It's we started at six thirty in the morning. You got the rest of the day ahead of you. So let's just start today, and let's start today walking with Christ and being repentant. And then tomorrow you'll have something to say because because you've lived for Christ for a day, and then live for Him tomorrow, one day at a time. Secondly, when it comes to innocence, there must be a relational kindness among us. If folks think that you're brittle, self-righteous, harsh, judgmental, they really don't want to get near you to have any uh, give you any of their time. If they suspect that you are kind and genuinely love people, they will normally at least give you a hearing. So when wolves are being wolves, remember you're not to be a wolf. That is not an option for you. You do not use the same Uh, weapons of warfare that they use you do not treat them the way they treat you you treat them the way you would want to be treated if you were a non-christian listening to this message put yourself in their shoes some of us how many of us were non-christians as adults okay for you it'd be fairly easy uh, to imagine because you knew how you wanted to be addressed As a non-Christian, I know how I wanted to be addressed even when I was an unbeliever. Uh, For some of you who are converted much younger, just ask these guys, to give me some hints. Tell me the best way to approach uh, people so that they will know that I genuinely love them. And thirdly, to be innocent, you've got to tell the truth. You can't deceive. Uh, In uh, Islam, if I understand it correctly, uh, there are some places where lies are warranted. Uh, You can lie about your marriage and you can lie in the course or cause of evangelism or in proselytizing others. Uh, You can lie uh, in order to uh, help uh, Muhammad's reputation or Allah's reputation. So you're allowed to lie in evangelism uh, in other religions. You're not uh, in Christianity. Uh, We're to be men of truth. So that means The gospel is going to come out because you truly believe it. and If you enter into a genuine conversation with someone where you genuinely like and love them and you're talking about issues of substance, how long will it be before Christ doesn't come out? Before Christ comes out, it'll come out. If you're in a friendship and you're having genuine conversations and you are being honest about your life at the motivational level, Christ must come out. Because he is what motivates you in everything. And you want to develop a wise way of communicating those things. Sometimes with some people, you just drop a little hint. Or you just leave them with a question. Some people, you share the whole gospel story with because they want to hear it. So this is what being innocent is. It's having moral integrity, relational kindness, and conversational truth. That makes you a person of integrity. Uh, As Don prayed a moment ago, of course, we... We uh, buried our brother uh, Doug Hickson's body this week. He, he died Sunday morning. Uh, he would stream uh, when he got sick and had to stay home. He would stream our worship services, and he was worshiping with us in the 815 service when he died. And uh, Doug, just for your information, he, he, uh, his biggest frustration since he went to hospice care uh, last month was, why is the Lord taking so long to get me home? He was so frustrated. (laughs) You know, you physicians, you know, you're always doing something, you know. And Doug was, and his question was, what do I do? You know, I want to go. And so uh, sad as we are for ourselves, we're very, very happy for Doug. But those of you who knew Doug, you know that here's a man uh, who was wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. There was relational kindness. And uh, I didn't mention this yesterday at his funeral, but there was an award ceremony for him and other people. Uh, at uh, the Le Bonheur Foundation a couple of years ago. Doug was one of the honorees, and, and I was uh, very pleased to be able to go and, and just to witness this whole thing. And all the honorees uh, who spoke, and if you are one of them, please don't take this negatively, but all the honorees that spoke were given standing ovations. Uh, they were shown great respect. They made very fine talks. When Doug was introduced, there was this regular standing ovation, but there was more. You could just hear everybody. It's like he was a rock star. (laughs) And it was the kind of adoration for a person because these people knew that Doug really loved them, and they loved him. At the end of his life, Doug became quite the preacher. (laughs) He preached. If you saw him in the past five or six months on his sickbed, you got your ears full. And I told the people yesterday, some of them, uh, who are not Christians, I said, look, don't be offended because Doug Hickson preached to you. He preached to me too. I mean, every time I went over to talk to him, I had to wait and get his 30-minute sermon before I could get a word in edgewise. And, and one time I said, Doug, I know I'm a preacher, man. I believe all this stuff. He said, he said Sandy, do you understand Jesus is the only way? There's no other. Uh, Yeah, Doug, I get it. I understand it. Uh, he, he was one who got more and more excited about the gospel The older he got and the sicker he got. And gentlemen, let me tell you something. Uh, No matter how young you are, you're all getting older. And the way the Christian faith works in our hearts, we are to get more excited about it. The older we get and the more wolves that we face, we get more excited about the gospel. And that should be our prayer. That's what's happening to us. When you go into this battle, wise as serpents, innocent as doves, you'll find that begins to happen in your life. Now, we need wisdom. We also, verses 17, 18, you will need courage. He says, beware of men. Boy, what a statement. <laughs> it's as though he's saying, beware, don't beware of women, beware of men. Well, we know we're supposed to beware of women for different reasons. Uh, the uh, lessons in the Proverbs, Solomon's lessons to his sons will tell you how to beware of women, loose women. But here he says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over. Same kind of language that's... This used of Jesus Christ. He was handed over to Pilate. He was handed over to Caiaphas. He was handed over into the hands of wicked men. And here Jesus is saying to us, you are going to be handed over. And it's as though He's saying, gentlemen, watch very carefully when I enter Jerusalem and when I'm whipped and beaten and spat upon and when I'm carrying my cross. Just observe that very carefully. That's your future. Because he says here, you are going to be taken into religious settings, synagogues, and they're going to flog you. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings. So you'll be taken in places where you will be embarrassed. All the powers will be set before you, and you'll be the little Christian idiot uh, who is being abused and held in contempt. Now, in Memphis, Tennessee, you say, and this doesn't happen to us very often. Well, it does happen it actually does but we're very sophisticated about it we don't actually whip you with cords Uh, that would make us to be the beasts instead of you so we whip you with snide little words marginalizing statements leaving you off of a guest list we do all kinds of things to let you know that your gospel is unacceptable so he's just saying you're going to need courage for this And how are you going to get courage? i tell you, gentlemen, the way you get it is get right into Jesus, get right into Christ. You look not only at his cross, you look at his resurrection, you look at his ascension, you look at his glory, and you say, that's where I'm headed. Yes, that cross is my future, but it's not my final future. It's the pilgrimage through which I get my glorious future. That's what encourages you. You stick with Jesus all the way through the cross because it's headed to the crown. Now notice in verse 18 that we are dragged before governors and kings for my sake. You're not dragged before governors and kings because you break the law all the time or you cheat on your income tax or you were driving 80 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour limit uh, uh, roadway. No, you're dragged there for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then look at the next thing. To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Wow. Wow. He says, gentlemen, don't lose sight of what's happening here. You're going among wolves. Therefore, you will be put on trial. Maybe in your case, not put in legal trial. Maybe it's social trial. Maybe it's some other kind of trial. But you'll be put on trial. Now, remember two things about that. Number one, you're there for my sake. Number two, remember being there for my sake. You're there to bear witness to those kings and to those governors, and to the Gentiles. So wherever you find your persecution coming, you often find your best place of witness. Now, sometimes your best witness is to be wise as a serpent and not say a word. And Jesus did that one, didn't he? he, Before Pilate, Pilate was acting very foolishly and violently, Jesus didn't say a word. And Pilate said, Why don't you take, why don't you speak up? Don't you know I have the power to put you to death? And Jesus was saying, You wouldn't have any power if my father hadn't put you there. <laughs> he was Jesus wasn't, there was no lack of confidence with Jesus. There was wisdom. He was wise as a serpent. He didn't say a word. And in that not saying a word, he bore amazing witness to the glory of his father before Pilate. Now, of course, eventually he did speak to Pilate, didn't he? And, uh, ex- and explained that he was the son of God. But there are moments when you're perfectly quiet, but it's for the purpose of bearing witness to who Jesus Christ really is. So don't forget that whatever the moment is, your purpose is to display Christ and to bear witness to him, verse 18. But you'll need courage for that. And courage just simply means your heart is being strengthened. When your heart is strengthened... You remember what your task is. Your task is not to survive. I remember that one of my pastors, uh, after I uh, entered the pastorate, my former pastor, he told me when he moved to a church where there was significant opposition to the gospel, he got his little family together and he said, Now, listen, kids, our job is not to survive. Our job is to minister Christ." And so you go in your schools and you be who you're supposed to be and I'm going to be the pastor I'm supposed to be. But it's a very important message. Our job is not to survive. And uh, you'll, you'll see that, of course, there's a sense in which we don't survive. Uh, he sends us out as lambs among wolves. What do you expect? Somebody's going to get eaten. But he says here, in the midst of the trial, you bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now, the the job gets tougher. Let's look at verses 19 through 20. Not only are we to be on our, on our uh, toes and beware of wolves, but we're to be not anxious. Say, how, how in the world do you do that? Somebody's getting ready to take your life. That makes me anxious. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. So when, when you have powerful people arrayed before you who are making fun of your religion, And you're supposed to give answers to it. You're very anxious. I'm going to blow this. And he says, don't be anxious about it. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say. Now, he's speaking to the apostles. So there's a special sense in which God is going to speak infallibly through apostles. But I believe the message extends to us too. He will enable you not to speak infallibly, but to speak wisely. And look what he says. In verse 19, he says, For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. That is, the Spirit We'll give you words. Now, it's, it's amazing how this actually happens for the Apostle Paul. And if you were here for our study in the book of Acts, you saw how this was true with the Apostle Paul when he stood before the Sanhedrin. You know, when you have those five trials or five encounters that Paul has from chapter 23 through chapter 26. And chapter 23, you remember, he's before the Sanhedrin because the crowd has all gotten riled up. And remember, you had Sadducees and Pharisees. Paul knew that this was an impossible situation to try to convince this mob. And so he said, I'm here because of the resurrection. (laughs) Of course, you know what happened. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection, and they knew the liberal Sadducees didn't. And so that, of course, started this going. Hey, yeah, the guy is here for the resurrection. Oh, that's the reason you ought to put him, put him in jail because he believes in the resurrection of the Sadducees. And they started warring with each other, and Paul slips right out. You know, So that's called wisdom. Wise as a serpent. Paul knew that there was, there was no defense to be made there. And yet, on the other hand, remember when he was with Felix, uh, the Roman procurator. With Felix, he talked about righteousness and judgment of God. And... And it convicted Felix, and he, he was terrified, had bad dreams and all the rest. And, of course, Felix, you know, dawdles around, hands him over to Festus, who looks for a, a bribe. Uh, Paul testifies to him, too, and finally has to appeal to Caesar. So Festus brings Agrippa in, and here you have the magnificent speech of the Apostle Paul in Acts 26. There's where you see him really conveying the gospel in its fullness. He told Agrippa about his own conversion. And then he said, therefore, King Agrippa, I cannot be disobedient to heavenly vision, the vision of Christ that was given me, the personal appearance of Christ in my life. And then, of course, Herod uh, Agrippa says, so you're going to make me a Christian? And Paul said, I wish I could, you know, uh, in in certain words. And so Paul is very, and here he, he has all the people in scarlet and purple, all the powers of his day and his region arrayed before him. And here he is in rags and chains holding forth the great truth of the gospel. It was the right moment. He was very wise and God gave him the words. And Paul knew to trust the Lord because the Lord said, I will give you what to say in that hour. And gentlemen, just devote yourselves to the scriptures. Devote yourself to living a Christian life. When those moments come, when you're being opposed, just quietly say, Lord, you promised. Please give it. Give me wisdom. Give me innocence. Give me truth that helps the other person. The truth that is applicable for that moment. Give it to me, please, Lord. Many, many times I've prayed that. Uh, there are times, you know, in a preacher's life when we get so many sermons in a week, we don't have time to prepare for them adequately. And there have been times when I've been driving to a graveside and said, Okay, Lord, <laughs> what you got? <laughs> you yeah, just too much going on that week. And, you know, I have just find him faithful over and over again. You just enter into that moment with the love of Christ and pray and ask him. Ask him. And so often we don't have because we don't ask. We don't know what to say because we really haven't talked to the Lord that day. Ask him. He says here, I will give you words. Notice even more beautifully in verse 20. He says, not only will I give you the words, it will actually be me speaking through you. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Spirit will speak through you. In Acts 1:1, very beginning of Acts, you remember what Luke says? He's writing to Theophilus. You know, and, and Luke, uh Luke's gospel was the you know first volume. Acts is volume two. And he says, Theophilus, I'm going to tell you. And he said, in my previous document, I told you what Jesus began to do and to teach. Which is to say the second volume a volume of Acts is what Jesus himself continues to do and to say. Remember, Jesus has already ascended into heaven. But Acts is what Jesus is doing. So the acts of the church are the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ working through his people. You're part of the church. So as you put your trust in Christ, you can say, Lord, please give me the words. But you can also say, Lord, please, you do the talking. And just take my lips and make them your own. I consecrate them to you. Give him your lips. Give him your heart. Give him your mind. Ask him to speak. Now, I'm a Presbyterian, so we don't don't get very charismatic and all that. But maybe Presbyterians need to be a little bit more charismatic than we are. We need to realize that Christ is alive. He is personally invested in his people. He lives in us, and he does mighty things. And he said to his disciples, greater things will you do than I have done. Now, the only way that's going to happen is if Jesus is working through all these people. So you should expect this. Ask him for it. Expect it. Do not be anxious. If you're anxious, here's why. You're thinking you've got to pull this off according to your own strength. You are worried about whether you're going to live or die. It's one of those two things. You're either worried about your death or you are depending upon your own strength. Renounce both of those things. Let's press ourselves into heaven. Let's get ourselves eager to go home. And then let's trust the Lord to speak through us. And you'll find that He does. When you trust Him, when you put your life in His hands, He will take your life and put His life in your heart. Put His life in your heart. Okay, verses 21 through 23 teach us something a little interesting here. And I I just call it be on the move. Be on the move. No reason for you to be a sitting target. A sitting duck. Uh, when you get persecution, be ready to flee. He says flee to the next town. All right, fine. There's no sense for you to say, look, I know there's great value in suffering, so somebody please beat me up. Uh, or allow someone just to abuse you. You know, we, we teach uh, wives uh, who are suffering verbal abuse from their husbands. Uh, warn your husband once that you're not going to listen to that and, and, and then leave the room. And if he follows you in the next room, leave the house until he comes down off the ceiling. There's no reason to leave yourself there as a whipping post for some verbal, verbally abusive person in your home. So uh, there's no reason to do that. You, you can be kind and be firm. And you can do the same thing. If someone's being unreasonably contemptuous, then just say, you know, I understand. You've, you've got your right to your opinion. If you'd like to talk about it sometime, let me know. And then you can just excuse yourself. Well, first of all, the reason he says beyond the move is, look, you're going to be betrayed. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the fa- look at this. The father, his child, could it be that people would be so wicked as to turn in their own children for their faith that they'll be abused? Yes. And children will rise against their parents. Could that be? And even have them put to death? Is this real? Yes. If you look at the history of the church, that's exactly what is happening. And that's the reason Jesus taught us. Don't be surprised by the wickedness of massive betrayal. Now look at Jesus' own life, of course. What happened with him? His family, including his mother, thought he had lost his mind and tried to take him out of the crowds. You remember that? They they thought Jesus was going crazy. They were trying to capture him, get him home, and get him out of this because he he looked like he was a manic depressive, uh, bipolar or something. Um, and he was in a manic phase or something. I don't know what they thought, but they didn't get it. And then, of course, his closest disciples, uh, his closest friends, betrayed or, or they, they abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. What amazing uh, suffering Jesus went through from those who were closest to him. Uh, and he's saying to you, uh, don't expect anything different. Uh, notice uh, in verse 22, be here, you will be hated. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's amazing that the only thing that restricts people often from expressing their full hatred of what you believe in the gospel is just simply the the politics. It was true uh, in Jesus' day. The scribes and Pharisees would have arrested him much earlier in the week if they could have gotten by with it but they knew that Jesus was so popular with the crowds that they couldn't dare take him away or they would have, the crowds would have swarmed the officers. And there's a sense in which uh, the value of a, a nation that has Christian roots is that it then creates some restraints against religious persecution. But what you'll find is, is as the church becomes less popular, those restraints go down and there'll be more explicit Uh, Expressions of hatred and contempt. Uh, That's just, that's our nature. It's not their nature, it's our nature. It's all of our nature. It's human, fallen flesh. So we must not be judgmental of others, we're just judging ourselves. He says, Beware of men. We're men. And apart from our uh, converted hearts, we would do the same thing. And we find here that. that Jesus warns not only here, but you remember in the upper room in John 15, verses 18 through 21, he tells them again, because they hate me, you too will be hated. So what you want to do is just simply look at the ministry of Christ and find out what kind of opposition he had from the natural human heart. And whatever that is, you should expect that that's the real reaction to your life and message by the unconverted world. But notice in verse 23 some good news. He says, you will be saved. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that's when he says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Uh, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There are various interpretations of that. You find several of them in your ESV footnotes. But he's basically saying, yes, while you're fleeing, while you're going from one uh, evangelistic encounter to the next one religious religious encounter uh, to the next Uh, just remember that there's there's an end to this that the son of man is going to come probably while right while you're in the midst of your going from one town to the next and you will be saved the one who endures to the end so it's not your initial profession of faith it's not your initial enthusiasm about the gospel like the second soil that where the seed springs up quickly until persecution comes and then withers. No, it's not your initial enthusiasm or profession of faith. It's your perseverance to the very end. That's what defines us as Christians. We're ones who go from here to the very end, knowing that we'll be saved. Now, fourthly and lastly, notice in verses 24 through uh, 33, we've already learned that we are to beware of wolves, to be not anxious, to be on the move. And here he teaches us, be not afraid. Now, uh, there are two ways to deal with fear. One is, like the psalmist says, uh, when I'm afraid, I will trust the Lord. And there's another psalmist who says, I will trust the Lord and not be afraid. (laughs) You could choose either one. (laughs) Uh, Because we have natural fears, and they come to us, when I'm afraid, I will trust the Lord. Or, maybe in your better moments, you're really trusting the Lord, you will not be afraid. And uh, uh, I think it was D.L. Moody, he called one, one of them first class uh, and, sec- and the other was second class. You can go first class or second class, just get there. Uh, but notice, first of all, in verses 24 through 25, we are, we are to be not afraid because, remember, we are following Jesus. And here Jesus said, gentlemen, you have to understand something. A disciple is not above his teacher. So if this was done to me, if they called me the devil... Can you imagine anything more wicked than calling Jesus Beelzebub? How wicked is that? If this world is capable of looking at the Son of God incarnate and calling him the devil, what do you think they might call you? I mean, anything goes, right? Don't complain uh, because actually, we're more like the devil than we are Jesus. And if they call us the devil, fair enough. But we're not the devil. But when we're called that, just remember, hey, we're following Jesus. I remember some years ago, maybe 25 years ago, reading uh, an editorial in the New York Times by a man named, I believe it was A.W. Rosenthal. Anybody know that name? Uh, A syndicated columnist. Rosenthal, I think, was a non-practicing Jewish writer. Very insightful. Rosenthal, in this article, was complaining about why it is that our State Department has nothing to say about massive numbers of Christians being persecuted all over the world. And he says, look, I'm, I'm Jewish and I know what it is to feel obligated to complain about people being put to death in ovens, millions of them. And he said, but what I want to know is why didn't somebody say something about all these Christians being put to death? I mean, it was a really remarkable article. And he said, furthermore, I don't understand why the Christians are not saying anything about it. In, and he listed several nations where Christians were very explicitly being put to death because of their faith. Well, you know, I think, I, I thought about that a lot. Why is it the Christians aren't saying more? I mean, we have our martyr's day. I mean, we have our day for the persecuted church in October of every year now. We, we pray for the persecuted church and the, the oppressed church. But why is it not? Well... The reason I think we don't make more noise, I think it's this verse right here. Because Jesus is saying, you know, <laughs> a disciple is not greater than, than his master. So if I've been per- persecuted, you're going to be persecuted. And we've been trained to expect this. And we've been trained to say, look, it's not as though we're going to be a, a, a doormat and invite people to beat us up. But when they do, for the sake of Christ, we are going to be like the disciples who rejoiced when they were counted worthy to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ. So when it is truly for His sake that we are being persecuted, we have been taught well by Jesus and the apostles to rejoice and be glad because the prophets were persecuted before us and Jesus Christ was persecuted. And we have a special sense of dignity That's being given to us when we are able to bear that cross, the cross of persecution for the sake of Christ. If you go into our sanctuary here at 2nd and just look up uh, toward the ceiling, you'll see what we call the apostle's shields. And on most of them, you'll see instruments of execution. It's amazing. It's kind of like a coat of arms, but these are shields. And they represent each... You know, Peter, for example, has an upside-down cross on his. Andrew has a diagonal cross. Philip has a slender little cross. Uh, uh, Thomas has three stones because he was stoned to death. Uh, Bartholomew has flaying knives on his because he was flayed alive and then, and then uh, 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 put to death. And on and on it goes. All of them, except for John, were persecuted to death. John was put into lifetime exile, but all the rest of them were put to death. And gentlemen. Uh, we're sitting in a comfortable Memphis expecting our rights to be protected, and we've grown to ex- expect certain entitlements as Christians because our forefathers largely put together a country that had respect for the church. But this is the minority report. The majority report for the past 2,000 years is if you follow with Jesus Christ, if you get in with him, you're in trouble. Amen. And so let's remember... That's our heritage. That's the real church that we belong to. It's the church of the apostles and the prophets. Look at their lives. Look at their deaths. We're in with them, and let's get in with them. And so you are following Jesus, so don't be afraid. What you need to do when you come to Christ is write off your life. Let's just deal with that one, okay? Just write it off. And you can't come to Christ, Jesus says, unless you take up your cross. He says, no one can follow me unless he denies himself. Takes up his cross and follows me. So you cannot do this stuff if you're trying to hang on to your life. Uh, in Romans 8, that wonderful passage we read it yesterday at Doug's funeral, where nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, what does he say in that text? We are sheep to be slaughtered every day. That's the context. We're martyrs. Martyr just means witness in Greek. Marturion means to be a witness. So witness is a martyr. And Paul is saying in Romans 8, it looks like we've been separated from God because we get slain all the time. We get, we get, we get persecuted. But he says, no, we're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What, what is he saying? He's saying it is our martyrdom that proves that we're not separated from Him. So his point in Romans 8 is... Rather than thinking that because of all the persecution, God is judging you. No, you have identified with Christ. This is the reason Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And then what did he say? And the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Paul called this a precious fellowship of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus when he was persecuted because of his relationship with Jesus Christ and his proclamation of the gospel. Now secondly, verses 26-27, do not fear because you will be vindicated. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Gentlemen, your identity in Christ will be made fully known. Your wisdom will one day be proclaimed to the universe. Here's a wise man, they will say, for all the ages. He chose Christ, the very consummation of wisdom and and of love and kindness. You will be vindicated one day. But you're living in the darkness now, as it were. And you're living incognito now. We don't know what a great person you are, but we will know one day. And then verses 28 through 31, see, you are valued. He says, he says folks, look, <clears throat> the devil is powerful. Other people are powerful. They can kill you. They will kill you. But don't fear them. All they can do is kill your body. You say, well, that's all they can do. That sounds like a lot to me. And Jesus says, no, there's more. Somebody could uh, destroy your body and then throw you into hell. These people cannot throw you into hell. The devil cannot throw you into hell. There's only one who can do that. That's the living God. Why don't you fear him? So you fear him who has uh, jurisdiction over your entire being. Now, if someone takes your temporary life away in this life, No big deal. But if someone takes away your eternal life, that's a big deal. He says, fear me. This is the solution to fearing other people. Fear God. When you have that fear, it causes all the fears to dissipate. And also you'll notice here, you're valued. You're more precious than sparrows. God loves the little birds. Not one of them dies apart from the Lord knowing that. You think you're going to die apart from the Lord knowing about your death and valuing you? And then lastly, He says to us in verses 32 and 33, you are remembered. He says, everyone who acknowledges me, I will acknowledge him. If he denies me, I'll deny him. But everyone who acknowledges me, I will acknowledge him. When you go out living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel, answering gospel questions, being a gospel man, you are acknowledging the Lord. Don't think for a minute. There's not going to come a day when He doesn't proclaim you as His Son. There is. So you live for that future day that's clearly in your mind. And you're enjoying the benefits of that already. And it's because of your Father's love that you go out into the world and proclaim His love to the world around us. So gentlemen, um, you are His lambs going out among wolves. And I just say, die well. Let us pray. Father, Father, Thank you for the privilege of taking up the cross and imitating our Savior. What a a privilege it is. Enable us today gladly to suffer whatever opposition may come to us, arising to us because of the gospel, and grant us the inner joy. Grant us the wisdom of serpents and the innocence of doves that we may display your character to a watching world. Please protect our hearts from discouragement or resentment of any other man and help us not to fear any man, but to fear you alone. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.